Let's turn in our Bibles to Matthew 16. Uh, Matthew 16, 16, this, uh, this beginning uh, to look at Jesus as the Christ. And, and we'll just start with Matthew 16. So let's stand in the honor of reading God's word. Let's just start out uh, right here with this verse sort of to kick us into what we've been looking for in, in 2 Peter, these last words, remember, of Peter, uh, where he tells us, look, you need to give glory to Jesus, Jesus, uh, who is our Lord, our Savior, uh, the Christ. And so we're looking through this last side. We are almost done. Uh, and of course, that's a, it's, a, it's always truncated as to all the things we could talk about how glorious Jesus is. But right now we're looking at Jesus as the Christ and what that means. Uh, and Peter earlier in his life gave us a little idea of what it might mean. Matthew 16, 16, this great pivotal, monumental statement from Peter uh, that Christ is actually going to build his church on and the gates of hell can't prevail against. Uh, let's read it. Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Let's pray. Father, as we take this time to come to you, God, because we've just, we have sung your word. We are now, uh, Father, hearing your word and diving into it. And, and Father, we can't grasp those things without you. The idea that we think we could understand your word without you helping us, Father, and kill any pride toward that that we might have. Let us know that your scripture is clear because you make it clear to us, because you teach us, because you uh, humble yourself uh, to put it to where we can know what you would have your people to know. And so, God, if you have done that, for us, if you've given us words that we might understand and worship and praise you, Father, I pray that as we are going through these texts today, that your spirit would continue to move, that it would convict us of our sin, that it would drive us to repentance, and that it would cause us to worship you, to be amazed by who our God is, that our focus would be on you, uh, on one another, on our own sins, uh, that our worship might be full and complete, pleasing to you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, so here we are, uh, and we're looking at what does it mean that Jesus is the Christ? And we saw the word Christ is just a simple word. It's a word that means someone has been anointed. It's just a word that means an anointed one. Uh, it was someone who had been anointed by God for a particular task or role. That person was a Christ. They were a Messiah. They'd been Messiahed. And the word Messiah just means anointing. You go through and you see it all over. I mean, the, the Old Testament is full of Messiahs. It is full of Christs. The, and, and normally when we say that, it throws people off to say that the Old Testament is full of Messiahs, full of Christ. But Jesus, when we're walking through Scripture, Jesus is not the, the first Messiah. He's not the first Christ. He's not the first anointed one. Jesus is the ultimate Christ. It, it, it's a... Put it in like if you could write it down, it would be like all of these Christs began with lowercase c's, right? Uh, and Jesus as Christ is the ultimate Christ. He is the, the titular Christ. His is, would be with, with a capital C. So every, every prophet, every priest, every king, they were all pointing ultimately and finally, as anointed ones, all of these that had been anointed for all these various tasks. And again, the Old Testament is full of them, but every single one of them is insufficient. And they all, as a conglomerate, are this vast shadow pointing forward in our Bibles toward Jesus, who would be the anointed one, the Messiah, the Christ, the fulfillment of all that God has promised. So then the question becomes, what makes Jesus so glorious as Christ is that he is the fulfillment of all of these great Old Testament roles. He is like we saw last week. He is the, you know, the glorious prophet who doesn't just speak the word, but who, who is the word of God. Right? So he's, he's the, the prophet par excellence. Like he is the ultimate prophet. He is, but he's not just the ultimate prophet. That'd be glorious enough, right? If Jesus was better than all of the prophets combined, you'd say, well, that's pretty great. But he's not just that. He's also the ultimate priest. 
So Jesus bears the glory of taking all of the priesthood and being greater than all of the priesthood combined because Jesus doesn't just come and offer animal sacrifices. Jesus is the priest who is the sacrifice, who is himself the perfect sacrifice, not just of a, of a lamb without blemish, but of a person without sin, without stain. But that's not the end of the Old Testament messiahs like we saw. We looked at those three major roles. Prophets, priests, that means what's left? Kings. Scattered throughout the Old Testament, you've got this group of people anointed to lead God's people, anointed for that task, who God says, I will anoint this person to do what? To lead. To lead my people, I will put my spirit, that's what the anointing was representing, I will put my spirit in this person to give them the ability to accomplish this goal. And so Jesus isn't just the fulfillment of prophets and priests, Jesus is also our glorious king. The glorious king that all of the other kings in the Bible pointed to. Every king that you're reading, they're all showing their insufficiencies. Even the great ones are showing that we're wanting, we're needing something more. And it's, it's as if we're, the, there's this constant expectation and constant failure. Well, all of those were preparing us for Jesus. For Jesus who would be the great king. So Jesus is the glorious king who leads on an eternal throne. So he's the prophet who is the word. He's the priest who is the sacrifice. And he is the king who leads on an eternal throne. We saw that in the Old Testament, the kings were anointed at their coronation. This is true of Saul. This is true of David. It was a sign that this person, this particular person, had been chosen by God to lead his people. And and God testifies to that in Psalm 89, verse 20. He talks about this. He says, I have found David, my servant. With my holy oil, I have anointed him. I have messiahed him. I have Christed him. I have anointed him for this purpose. That's who David is. I took my oil, represented in the actual oil that he was anointed with, But of course, the picture being ultimately of the anointing of the Holy Spirit. And he says, this is my anointed one, David. He's he's been appointed by me to lead my people. But, But even with all of these kings, there were always unmet expectations. And so namely, the kings, like like priests and like prophets, they all do what? They all sin and they all die. Every single one of them sins and dies. So you start to think back about what the, key, what the people were hoping in for a king. How can the people hope in a king to lead them who can't even lead himself? I mean, think about the sinfulness of the kings of Israel. Every, every single king that you go through, even the best of them, were greatly scarred by sin. I mean, Saul, as we all know, had his obvious problems. He was great looking on the outside, not so much on the inside. What did he try to be? He thought, you know, king is great. You know, it'd be better king and priest, right? Uh, if king is good, king and priest is great. But the prophets were like, well, he's coming for us next. But that didn't work out so well. He tried for a double anointing and instead lost any anointing. He tried to get a double portion and lost every portion. Or how about David? I mean, David. A man after God's own heart, right? Everyone wants to be like David, you know, a murderer and an adulterer. After he became king. I mean, and you think of Solomon. Solomon, I mean, so even even at the beginning of these kings, you got Saul, you've got David, you've got Saul. Solomon, finally, finally we get a king who is the wisest man in the world for all time. And how does the Bible end his life? And Solomon fell in love with foreign women. Uh, and Solomon built an altar to child sacrifice. And you went, that doesn't seem very wise. Uh, And then after that, it's, and then Solomon died. So even these great kings, sinful, sinful men, where you can look at and go, yeah, they're pretty great, but I've never murdered anybody. I I certainly haven't built an altar to child sacrifice yet. Uh, So I've at least got that on Solomon. 
But even Eaton, the list could go on and on. Those are, those are the good kings, right? That's the good ones. That's the good ones. So how can we trust a king who, who can't even lead himself and, and even the kings that could seem to lead themselves? What happens to every one of them? They die. Even the greatest of kings. I mean, you look at uh, Hezekiah or Josiah. I mean, Josiah, right? The greatest king. A king who the Bible says that he followed God unlike any king with all his heart, with all his soul, and with all his strength. Like, the, he's, he, this is a king fulfilling the greatest commandment. And what happens to him? What happens to this great Christ, this great anointed one? I mean, the end of his life is like, I mean, you're reading through the life of Josiah and it's like, oh, this Josiah is pretty neat. And it's like, and then Josiah died by getting an arrow. Like, and it's like, what, what happened? Like unceremonious, sudden death. We're in the end of his life. This man who, who was a king like no other knows less than the Pharaoh in Egypt. Because the Pharaoh is trying to tell him, look, God has told me to tell you not to do this, not to come out against me. And he did it anyway. And even the greatest king in Judah's history dies unceremoniously on the battlefield, hidden in disguise, right? And so God promised a king that wouldn't fall prey either to sin or to death, but a king who would reign righteously and would reign forever. Uh, look at what it says in 2 Samuel chapter 7. We get a hint of this already early in David's life. Early. 2 Samuel chapter 7. Remember uh, 2 Samuel 5 is, uh, it's, it's pretty sure it's 5, is where David is anointed king. So just a little bit of context. He's been anointed king. Now in 2 Samuel 7, listen to what God tells David about his throne and about the promise of an, an eternal kingdom. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 16. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Your throne will be established forever. What happens? You look at David's line. Is, is this true? For will, will this be true of all of David's descendants? Well, yeah, his, they all descend. But not just from David. They all descend into sin and they all descend into death. So there lingers over the Old Testament. This expectation promised to David, never fulfilled. These kings that come in, they don't lead righteously. And even the ones who lead righteously in the end die and die in fairly sad and unexpected ways, but die nonetheless. And so there's this promise of a king who would reign forever, of, of not just a forever kingdom, but of a forever king. Not just of a kingdom that is sort of passed down from person to person to person from David to Solomon but a king who who would reign forever who would never die you see it's in place like Daniel chapter 7 Daniel chapter 7 verse 13 I saw in the night visions and behold with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man and he came to the Ancient of Days, and he was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. That all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So David says, or what Daniel says is you've got this hope of a, of a son of man who's going to come and he'll have a dominion, he'll have glory, he'll have a kingdom, a kingdom that's over all people, a kingdom that's unending, that he will be unending, his kingdom will be unending, this glorious son of man. Now it's no surprise, what is Jesus' favorite name for himself going throughout the gospels? The son of man. Pointing us back, like Jesus already knows that he's the king. Right? Jesus isn't like in Matthew 28 going, you guys aren't going to believe this. God has made me king. Uh, Jesus already knows uh, what he has come to do. Uh, and so this king is the hope. But you go throughout from Daniel. I mean, you go throughout the rest of the history of the people of Israel. And, and many times there's not even a king to, to have as the people are in exile or under oppression. 
So this was never fulfilled. It was never fulfilled throughout the history of Israel because every king was either unrighteous or the, and then died or they were righteous and then died. No Christed king is able to fulfill this promise until you get to Jesus. When Jesus comes, now all of a sudden the king that was promised from the beginning Remember, this king that was promised even before Israel said they wanted a king, God's like, let me tell you what your kings are going to be like and what you're going to need to do. This king comes in Jesus. Jesus, who is the Christ, the anointed one. And so very early on in the story of Jesus' life, very early on, the gospel writers want us to understand that this Jesus being born is our king. And not just our king, but the king, the king of kings. So you look at a place like Matthew 1.1. I mean, the very first word, the very first words you read about Jesus in the New Testament tell us what about him. It says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus the Christ, who is what? The son of David, the son of Abraham. The son of David, the son of Abraham. That's who, so very, very first thing off, off the lips of Matthew is I want you to understand that this Jesus is the Christ and not just a son of David, but the son of David. I mean, the same thing happens in Luke. Before Jesus is ever born, what does the angel tell Mary? Before Jesus is even born. Luke chapter 1 verse 32. Luke chapter 1 verse 32. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. I mean, it's it's so clear that Jesus is going to be king that even non-Jews know it, right? Even non-Jews know this guy's coming to be the king. What non-Jews know this? What non-Jews? Jesus' birth story. No, although he does know, he's told, and, but he's told by whom? Who's he told by, Boogie? Who's he told? Who comes and tells Herod, we have come to see the wise men, right? The wise men, Matthew chapter 2, uh, Matthew chapter 2, verse 2. What do the wise men come and ask? Remember, they ask the guy who is the king. What do they come and ask him? They say, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? which is normally something you don't want to hear someone ask when you feel like you are the king of the Jews. Uh, But even the wise men understand from whatever Old Testament knowledge they had that this coming of the Christ was the coming of the king of Israel. This is the promised king and we have followed his star. Show us where the king is, but I'm the king. No, I mean the real king, the king capital K. And Jesus is that promised king. In fact, the Bible tells us that he is the immortal what? King of kings. So 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 14 through 16. What does it say? Keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone has what? Immortality. Jesus is the king who, as Daniel 7 says, will reign forever. Who death will not beat. In fact, Jesus is the one who beats death. All the other kings are killed, some of them in a sort of mocking way of death. Jesus reigns with immortality. But not only is Jesus' kingship greater in terms of time, it's also greater in terms of scope. Because Jesus won't just reign over Jerusalem. This king of the Jews is not just going to be king of, you know, a small city in the Middle East. He's going to reign over the world. Right? As much as David and Solomon expanded the kingdom uh, of Israel, they never expanded it across the globe. 
of all tribes and tongues and nations. They never did that, and no king ever did. In fact, as the kingdoms of, of Israel uh, progressed, it seemed to get smaller and smaller, and they'd get kicked out, right? Uh, and then they'd come back, and then smaller and smaller. Listen to, about Jesus' reign, Matthew 28, verse 18. Listen to Jesus tell us what his kingdom is and the boundaries of his kingdom. And Jesus came and said to them, this is, of course, the Great Commission. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And that's the reason we go, therefore, and make disciples of what nations? What nations do we go and make disciples of? Go then and make disciples of the Jews because their king is here. What does he say? Go and make disciples of all nations. Now, why can he say make disciples of all nations? Because who is the king of all nations? Christ. So Christ is this ultimate king. Not only is he a perfect king, not only is he an immortal king, he is the worldwide king. He is this king, not just over a small group of people. He is this king over the world. David's descendant, as we saw. And you remember, that's what Daniel 7 said would happen. This king reigns from shore to shore. He, Jesus, is that promised anointed one, the Messiah, the Christ, who would reign over all peoples and do so in all righteousness and would reign over those, not just from shore to shore, right? But in earth and in what? And in heaven. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And we, we, in our history class, we've talked about these great conquerors that conquered vast kingdoms. Uh, normally in Central Asia, where there's just vast nothing, it's really easy to conquer a vast kingdom where there's no one at. Uh, but even these, even these nations with their vast kingdoms, you know what? They never reigned over the world. The world. And Christ's kingdom spreads not just over the entire globe, but over heaven and earth itself. So Jesus is this glorious king who leads God's people in righteousness and does so from an everlasting throne. So when you think about what is, when we say Jesus is king of kings, we don't just mean that he's the best king like other kings. We don't just mean, oh, he's really, we mean all kings have ultimately been pointing to this king. Even the unrighteous kings of this earth where they're trying to lead people. They're all pointing to one day, this great shadow, this echo of of God reigning over his people and doing so forever. Jesus is the glory of all the kings of Israel and men tied up in one, the king of all kings, the Lord of all lords, the king who reigns in righteousness, and who does so forever. No king like that. No king. And Jesus is that king. So you're, you're looking at Jesus in the fulfillment of all of these hopes of the Lord's anointed. He is, he is the son to their, to their shadows. But how? How is Jesus the ultimate fulfillment of these things? Is, is, did we just happen to get lucky that there was finally one of us good enough to be all these things? Did we just, ha- did just happen to be, you know, you roll the dice enough and eventually one of us is going to be not totally depraved. Uh, and then maybe if we roll the dice enough after that, maybe not even, not totally depraved, but not depraved at all. No. How is Jesus able to be these things? Because in a, in a great twist in the English language that doesn't work in hardly any other language, Because the son is the son. Because the son to their shadows is the son of God. So Jesus last is the glorious son of God who comes to save his people. So when we're looking at the glory of these things, we want to look at the glory of the roles. We want to look at the glory of the one who is the ultimate prophet. We want to see how glorious it is to have all the priests, put them all together, and there's still nothing compared to our priest. To have all the kings of all the world, put them together, and they're nothing compared to the king of kings and lord of lords. We want to see that, and our hearts want to be filled with the glory of who Jesus is. 
And we want to we have that confidence, right? We want to have that joy, but we want to know why he's those things. Because he is the son of God. There's always been this promise long ago that when the salvation of God's people came, it would be because God himself came to save his people. Just take, for example, one instance of it. Now, Isaiah chapter 40, a great place to see. It's Isaiah chapter 40, verses 1 and 2. Says, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Verse 9 then tells us, Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem. So here we are comforting. Here's what we're proclaiming. O Jerusalem, herald of good news, lift it up. Fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, what? Behold your God. Now remember, this is the God that they had just prepared the way for. They just made the way for their king to come. They lifted up the valleys. They torn down the mountains. They made a straight path because the king was coming. And when the king comes, you don't want him going down into the valley and then up and then having to go around this rock and around these woods. No, when the king's coming, you like, you pave the way, straight path. And so then the herald comes, he comes running to the mountains and he shouts to the city, behold, you're God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. So comfort the people, comfort with this forgiveness, with salvation, with telling them what comfort? Behold, your God. Salvation is coming. Because God is coming to save his people. So when you're looking at Jesus, he is the ultimate fulfillment of this hope. You know, how can Jesus be all these things? It's not just luck. It's not just that Jesus is some great guy that we should all try to be like. Although there had been many Christs. There was always this recognition by the Jews that one day when the Christ came, one day when the Messiah came, he wouldn't be just another one of us. That the problem is that all of these anointed ones have been just another one of us. That one day there would come the ultimate Christ, the ultimate fulfillment, because the Son would come. In fact, we saw this. We saw this when we talked about the prophets. You might not have seen it, but you're going to see it now. It tells us that one of the reasons Jesus is the greatest prophet is because unlike those other prophets... Jesus is what? Not just the word. Jesus is the son. So Hebrews chapter 1 verse 2. 1 and 2. Long ago and at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us, how? By his son. So the reason Jesus is the greatest prophet is because unlike the other prophets, Jesus is the son of God. Or John chapter 114, when we, we talked about the word becoming flesh and dwelling with us, what does it say? And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. What glory? Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So what makes Jesus great prophet? How is Jesus the prophet who doesn't just speak the word, but who is the word? Because Jesus is the Son, the Son of God. But these are not new revelations in Hebrews or in John. The people knew. The, pe- the people all had an expectation that when the Christ came, the Hebrews doesn't say, guess what, guys? The greatest prophet actually ended up being, shh, don't tell anybody, the Son of God. What? I never expected that. Like the people knew that's what was going to happen. In fact, every gospel makes the point of equating Christ with the Son of God, of saying he's the Christ, the Son of God. He's the Christ, the Son of God. He's the Christ, the Son of God. He did, they didn't say he's the Christ and also, you're not going to believe this, the Son of God. But to speak of the Christ, the people knew that when the Christ came, it would be because the Son himself had come. Take, for example, we mentioned Matthew 1.1. How about Mark 1.1? I mean, the, all of these truths, they're not hiding in their gospel somewhere. 
I'm not saying, hey guys, I have found a secret code hidden in these books. And if you'll look there with me, what I'm saying is, guys, let's read the first verses, right? Let's read the first words. I mean, you can get tired. Maybe you read, you can't read very long before you get sleepy, but everyone can make it through the first verse, right? The very first verse of these, Mark 1.1, what does it say? The beginning of the gospel of Jesus the Christ, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So there's already an expectation that the Messiah, the Christ, would be the Son of God. Mark doesn't have to say, again, hey, you guys aren't going to believe this, but the Christ is also going to be the Son of God. The people already know that. So he's like, look, I'm going to give you the story, the good news of this Christ, the Son of God. Now, remember, this, this title, Son of God, is not just a normal term. He's not just throwing this around. The, even, even the bad guys knew how important the Son of God was going to be, right? Why did the Pharisees, I mean, when Jesus said he was the Son of God, what did the Pharisees want to do? They wanted to kill him because he knew that he was putting himself, he was speaking blasphemy, making himself equal with God. So when Mark is saying this, Christ, the Son of God, he's not just mean Christ, you know, a believer. We're all children of God. He's not saying that. He's saying, this is the son of God. Of everything later on that when Jesus says, people are like, stone him. Where when some, there was a chance when Mark was disseminating his gospel and Pharisees could have seen this and stoned him for it. For saying that Jesus was the Christ, the son of God. This is blasphemy to them in the text because the son of God is important. Because they knew who the son of God was going to be. When the son of God comes, then Christ comes and they knew one thing they didn't want of Jesus. They didn't want him to be their Christ. But remember, the pivotal proclamation of Peter's. That's a great alliteration right there. What, is, what does Jesus say? What, what does Jesus say about this? In, in Matthew 16, 16, he says, Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ. What? The son of the living God. Peter knows that the Christ, which remember Peter had been waiting on, Remember, his brother comes and gets him and says, hey, look, I found the Messiah, he who's called Christ. And Peter goes and knows that who's the Messiah going to be? The Messiah, the Christ, is going to be the Son of God. So when they're already going to Jesus, they're not waiting on some sort of greater rabbi sort of thing. There is an inkling, an understanding in their minds that if this is the Christ, then who we're going to follow is none other than the Son of God himself. How about Matthew 26, 63? Again, we see even the bad guys know this. This is is the story of his arrest and his trials. And Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, which remember, uh, if you remember back, Matthew 16, he's the son of the living God. So here the bad guys are adjuring him by, I'm pleading with you, I'm commanding you by the living God Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Not tell us if you're the Christ. And also tell us if you're the Son of God. Even even these, even even here, the, the high priest knew that when the Christ came, he would be none other than the Son of God himself. But we get even better than the high priest the high priest who would, who would cry out for Jesus' death. We get even worse bad guys than the high priest know that the Christ will be the Son of God. Luke chapter 4. This is an interesting verse, very interesting verse. I love this verse, Luke chapter 4, because it's interesting, not because I want to, like, stitch it on a doily or anything. Don't get it for me for Christmas. It says, and demons also came out of many, crying. You're like, well, I hope you don't want that. Uh, crying what? You are the son of God. That alone would be interesting, right? The demons recognize that Jesus is the son of God. But look at the connection that Luke makes with that. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew that he was the Christ. When they're claiming you are the son of God, the demons are claiming you are the Christ, which which means that even the demons know that Jesus is the son of God. And that the Son of God is the Christ. 
It's so, it's so connected, the two, that Luke doesn't even have to explain it. He doesn't say, you know, they called him the Son of God. And, and then Luke say, now, you've got to understand, when they say Son of God, they're really meaning Christ. Luke is expecting his readers to know those two are connected. That when they proclaim he is the Son of God, the demons are proclaiming that he is the Christ. So when people say that even the demons believe in God and tremble, the demons don't even just believe that in God. The demons believe that Jesus was the Son of God, the Messiah. I mean obviously because they'd seen him uh, in heaven. And like, hey, we know you and this isn't going to be good for us. Uh, which is why when they see him on earth, they're like, we should probably like, don't just destroy us type stuff. But even like go to Lazarus' tomb, these great, so Lazarus' tomb, you got Martha. Martha, who again, is like the feminine version of Peter so many times. You get Martha who says what? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the son of God who is coming into the world. So she knew that the Messiah was coming, that the Christ was coming, the anointed one was coming, and that he would be the son of God. I mean, even, even the, so we did the first verses. Now let's go to, not the final verses, but sort of the wrap-up verses to Gospels. If Matthew and Mark begin with this sort of thing, John ends with it. John chapter 20, verse 31. What does he say that the whole purpose of the gospel of John is? He says, these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, what? The Son of God. And that by believing, you may have life in his name. So Jesus, as the Christ, is Jesus the Son of God. So the Christ was, was known. The people knew the Christ wasn't just going to be another person. The Christ was going to be filled with a glory we could never have. He was going to be that divine answer to the person problem. The Christ, the, the ultimate king, the ultimate priest, the, the ultimate prophet, he was going to be God himself, the son of God. Well, we saw that. We saw Isaiah 40 tell us that God was going to come and save his people. We saw that, but why? How did people go from that to just making it the son of God? Right? You, you mentioned Isaiah 40, but Isaiah 40 doesn't talk about the son. So why would people take Isaiah 40 and go where it says, behold your God? And people go, yeah, he's talking about the son of God. Well, for example, because the other scriptures explain it to us. So look at Psalm chapter 2. This is where this understanding comes from. They would be so sure in the people. Psalm chapter 2 is probably the most explicit place for it. Listen to the words of Psalm 2 and the the promise of a king who would be the son. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel against the Lord and against his whom? His what? His anointed, his Messiah, his Christ saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. That's what they're doing anytime against any of his messiahs, but this one's going to be against the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, so you nations raging, doing all this, he's laughing. He says, all right, let me tell you what's going to happen. He says, as for me, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. And what else? Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are those who take refuge in him. So here, in something you've got, you've got in vain, all the nations, all the people are sort of plotting against the Lord, against his Messiah, against his Christ, against his anointed, but it's all in vain. It's all in vain because God has given his Christ the nations. 
has given him the ends of the earth. The ends of the earth can't stop that. They can, they can rebel. They can plot. And what does the Lord do? He laughs and he tells them what's going to happen. He says, I, re- I appreciate your input, you know, uh, but that's not what's going to happen. I have set my king on his throne, on my holy hill, on Zion. But who does it say that the Christ is? Verse 7, what is it, who does it say the Christ is? The Lord said to me, you are my son. And what does it say down in, in verse 12? Kiss who? Kiss the son. The Lord's anointed would be the son of God. That it's the son that would bring the forgiveness of sins promised so long ago. And, and, so, and then highlighted again later in Isaiah 40. And so when you get to the book of Acts, Paul takes these verses in Psalm, Psalm 2. And he points to Jesus fulfilling these verses. And he uses Jesus fulfilling these verses as proof that our sins had been forgiven. How do you know your sins are forgiven? Because Jesus is the son. So Acts chapter 13, verses 32 through 39. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. As also it is written in the second psalm. He wanted them to be able to find their place. In the second psalm, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption. He's spoken in this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says also in another psalm, you will not let your Holy One see corruption. For David, after he'd served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep. And was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you therefore brothers. That through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him everyone who believes is freed from everything. From which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. So Jesus he is the son. He's the Christ. The resurrection. Paul says the resurrection is proving that Jesus is the son. And not just proving that he's the son. The good news means that if Jesus is the son then our sins are forgiven. The Christ has come. How does God prove that Jesus is indeed the Christ? How does he prove that Jesus is the anointed one promised in Psalm chapter 2? By raising him from the dead. Showing us this is my son in whom I am well pleased. A statement he had made several times in the life of Christ and then sort of shouted to the world in the resurrection. This is my son. So what is so glorious about Jesus as the Christ? Well, as the Christ, Jesus is the glorious son of God who fulfills the promise of salvation, of the forgiveness of our sins and of true freedom from slavery so when we're looking at this how is jesus the most glorious prophet how is he the most glorious priest how is he the most glorious king because jesus is the christ he's prophet he's priest he's king he's all of those anointed offices wrapped up in one perfect person the prophet who is the word the priest who is the sacrifice, the king who is righteous and eternal. He is the Christ who is the son of God. So what glory can we have when we think of Jesus as the Christ? Every time you say Jesus Christ, and we say it so often, so quickly, without even thinking of the meaning of that second word. Every time when we say Jesus is the Christ, we should be thinking Jesus the Christ. He is the Messiah, the anointed one, the perfect priest, the perfect prophet, perfect king, the ultimate fulfillment of God's promise to speak, to save, and to lead his people, and to lead all of his creation. And he sent his own son to do these things and to do them through his death instead of ours. That is the glory of our Christ, may that word never leave our lips without a tingle of glory when we hear it in our ears. And we'll end kind of where we started in looking at the Christ. We'll end in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20. 
What should this cause us to do? When we see that Jesus is Christ, when we see that he is the fulfillment of all of these pictures, all of these promises. I mean, the prophets are a promise. The priests are a promise. The kings are a promise. They're never meant to be a fulfillment in themselves. They're all a shadow. They're all a promise. Well, what do we do when we see these promises fulfilled? 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him, through Christ, that we utter our amen to God for his glory. Jesus, the glorious fulfillment of all of these promises, a glory that should pull an amen from our lips. When you read these things, when we read about the great promises of God, is that what is pulled from your lips? Is that the joy that you see, the promise fulfilled, the expectations met, the grace, the mercy, all of them tied up in Jesus Christ? Can there be a more glorious title than Christ, the Son of God? Amen. Let's pray. as we bow our heads if you are anything like me one thing that this series has shown me and these texts have shown me is that as glorious as I think Jesus is I am not giving him near the glory that he deserves and it's not just with my lips it's not just that I can sing songs and they be about how great Jesus is and I can go nah that was okay it's not just uh, in, in my Bible reading that I can read about Jesus and get sleepy. Can read through the Gospels and go, oh, it's been 10 minutes. It's not in some of those things, although it is found in those things. It's also in the fact that I so easily let sin cling to me. When the glory of Christ is like a great purging fire, making our sin seem so heinous and wicked and ugly. The glory of Christ is one of your greatest weapons in the fight against sin. And if you will hold on to sin, it is only because your Christ is not glorious. It is only because your Jesus is not as great as the Jesus that we've seen in these pages. Because the Jesus we see in these pages, the Christ that we read about, the promises, all of these great promises fulfilled, that sun that drives away the shadows would drive away the sin from our hearts. It would purge sin from us. His glory would blind us to anything other than him. You want to see if you think Christ is glorious enough? You want to know, am I giving Christ enough glory? Look at your life. Look at it. Is your, is your life Christian? Who are you? I'm a Christian. I'm a Christian. Is your Christ glorious enough? Your Christ whose name you bear, is he glorious enough to cause you to hate your sin? To hate it? Instead of making excuses for it, instead of giving up all the reasons you have to do it, whether it's your past or your present or whatever, all the excuses you make, turn those excuses to the glory of Christ and he will melt them away. And you'll be the husband that you were meant to be. You'll be the father that you were meant to be. You'll be the church member that you were meant to be. You'll be the neighbor, the, the, the employee. You'll be the boss. You'll be all the things that you're meant to be when you live those things in light of the glory of Christ. So look to the sun. Kiss that glorious sun. And find life. Life in the light of his glory and grace.
What a Savior. What a Jesus. What a Christ. And from all of our hearts, we should all have the same word springing from our hearts today. Amen. Amen to God for his glory. Father, we come to you today and we are thankful. We are so thankful for the good news that you told your heralds to proclaim from on high that you are coming and, and, and paying double for, the, for our iniquities. You are bringing salvation to us. You are rescuing, redeeming us, and you have done it through your son, through the Christ, that perfect, perfect anointed one that you sent to not just speak the word, but be the word, to not just talk about sacrifices or to sacrifice, but to be the sacrifice for sins, to not just, not just lead for a moment, but for eternity. Father, words cannot convey how glorious that is, how glorious it is that Jesus is the fulfillment of every one of those promises and more. And so, Father, I pray we would utter amen today in light of his glory. I pray we would say amen when his glory is telling us to run from sin, that we would look at that and his glory is proclaiming, run from your sin. And we would say, amen, amen. I pray when his glory comes and, and tells us, you sing and you sing with joy on your heart and you praise me. Let the words that you see on the screen, let them bring out of you a great joy for me that we would say, amen, amen. That when we're reading about our salvation and your word and we're seeing what you've done to us through your son, that we'd see those things and say, amen, amen. That we do so for your glory. That your glory would be what drives everything that we do this week, everything that we do every day of our lives. Because if it's not, then we're not looking at your glory. Because there's nothing in our lives that can compare to the glory of Jesus Christ. So if we're letting something, Father, take, take root in our hearts, when our hearts have been set free, then, Father, we are, we are turning from something glorious to something so drab and deadly. Today, Father, the greatest grace you can give is just to open the blinds a little bit that we might see the glory of the sun and to know that that glory will reshape our entire life and reshape our eternity. The glory that Jesus is the Christ. Thank you, Father, for sending your Son. It is in his name that we pray and utter our amen to his glory. Amen.